Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Priya Misra, Managing Director, Global Head of Race Strategy at TD Securities, joins us. And I know she doesn't want to talk about powertrains on a Ford F-150 truck. We want to talk to you, Priya, about what your Federal Reserve is going to do here. I mean, we had a pretty strong, solid uh, payroll number on Friday, but boy, there's a lot of inflation out there. How do you think your Federal Reserve is going to react in the weeks and months going forward? I mean, I guess one analogy to your power uh, truck uh, talk before is uh, I think the Fed has to be aggressive. I mean, you know, policy is very accommodative given the economic uh, outlook right now. And so I think uh, they are signaling that they want to get to neutral fast. I think the big debate in the market is, do they have to go above neutral? How much above neutral? Can they engineer a soft landing? Or will they force the economy into a recession to try and get inflation credibility? But the one clear message we're getting is they want to normalize, at least to whatever neutral is. And, uh, you know, uh, neutral for the funds rate, I would say, is in the 2.5% funds rate. Uh, So we are expecting the the Fed to hike 50 basis points in May, June, then continue with uh, with 25 until they get to that neutral point. We also expect them to start QT uh, very soon in in May as part of normalization. Priya, our question of the day on the MLive um, blog was, where is our star? What What is the neutral rate right now? And I guess... First, it depends if you're talking about real or uh, nominal, but um, how do you get to that number? Right, and there's a lot of research done on this. They tend to come to the R star, so the the real equilibrium uh, rate being somewhere between zero and 50 basis points, but there's a very wide range of of estimates around this this median estimate. You know, there are those that argue it's negative. I'm going to throw another point in here, that when the Fed is letting the balance sheet run off, I think our star, even the real number, is is probably lower than it would be if the Fed was not letting the balance sheet run off. So when we run these historical metrics, you know, the balance sheet's only run off once before. And I would argue that the Fed did overdo it last time when they took the funds rate to two and a half. So I would say closer to zero is what we would call neutral. But, you know, the Fed is humble and we're all humble uh, as we're figuring out what neutral is. I think that's why the Fed might want to maybe speed it up in the near term. That's why we've got the two back-to-back 50s. And then slowly get to that neutral because then the, the economy should show signs that we are nearing our star. Even if we don't have a great sense of what it is you know, beforehand, we should see the consumer start to slow down and corporate start to slow down. And that will be a sign that we're getting close to neutral. The Fed should start to get, uh, you know, slow down, then become more cautious. There was a great tweet, I think it was over the weekend, by um, Roberto Perli, uh, who worked at Piper, works at Piper Sandler. Um, he shows a chart, his his estimated nominal neutral rate is charted along with the Fed's funds rate. Uh, since 1961. And every time um, it seems the Fed funds rate touches or gets beyond the nominal neutral rate, it drives us into a recession. Do you expect a recession? So we don't expect a recession because we don't expect the Fed to go much above neutral. So, you know, the the two we have, you should be consistent. For those who argue that the Fed's going to go to three and a half or above 3% on the funds rate, and the market's now pricing in 3.1 as the end point of the hiking cycle. 
I think then it's very reasonable that the economy slows down significantly the, and the Fed may have to cut right after that. And that's why you look at the yield curve or just, just uh, you know, forwards are pricing in almost three rate cuts, um, you know, after terminal rate is reached. Because we have the Fed slowing down as they approach neutral and not going much above neutral, we're sort of expecting that the Fed will engineer this soft landing and they don't. We don't have a recession. They don't need to cut. But there are these two possibilities. There is a, a, a case where inflation forces them to go above neutral. And then I think the economy slows down, perhaps goes into recession. I'm somewhat sympathetic to the idea that if the unemployment rate rises a little bit, hard to prevent that from just rising a little bit. And that's when you do, you know, the, the SAM rule kicks in and you actually go into a recession. So that's a reasonable, uh, you know, possible outcome right now. All right, Priya, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts and perspective here as our Federal Reserve uh, continues on its rate hike uh, plan here. Priya Misra, Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy at TD Securities. You know, Matt, since the beginning of this pandemic thing, we've been leaning on this dude named Sam Fazelli. And who is this guy, Sam Fazelli? He's been on Bloomberg News. He writes stuff. He's on TV. He's on radio. Why? Sam Fazelli, well, here's his day job. He's the head of the European research, all of research for Bloomberg Intelligence in Europe. So he's got like 50, 75 people reporting to him. So he is, in theory, a manager, but that's debatable. But his big call to fame is he's a... Uh, Paul likes to dump on managers. Yeah, I do. Just FYI. It's exactly. a little inside baseball. But his claim to fame is he's in really, really made his chops. He's one of the top pharmaceutical uh, med medical analysts in the city of London. And occasionally he comes to New York to share his expertise. And he's a licensed wine investor. sommelier. Yeah, he's crazy. He does yeah. a wine thing. He's a wino, too. So we've got that going for him. But he's actually in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. For me, pandemic's in the rearview mirror. Am I... A little bit early. He's been on saying that. that for months. I've by been the saying way. that for months. Yeah, I think that was uh, Paul's uh, wish every morning or every, every evening before going to bed. He knelt by <laughs> his bed and did this. But first of all, can I just say how nice it is to be here? Yes. Together with you in the flesh. Yep. So that already. Yep. And there are a lot of people in the office today. Right. And that gives. And it's a Monday, right? Supposedly yeah. Mondays and Fridays are, are sh should be light. But that, to a degree, plays to your comment. Uh, in that I felt comfortable enough to get on a plane to come here. I looked at case counts here. Okay, they may be going up a little bit, but nothing like what we had before. I thought, this is my opportunity. Hopefully, it will never go back to what it was before. I don't think the virus is, has quite finished with us. Okay. But still, um, we're in a period where we are able to manage all this pressure with the vaccines that we've all had and the drugs that we've got. We certainly see, well, it feels like the mutations are less deadly um, since... Uh, Delta, right? Um, is that the case for viruses? Do they mutate in uh, less and less deadly forms? Or is it possible that what, some mutation comes along that is, again, um, severe in terms of the disease it causes? Yeah, Matt, I think we lucked out there a little bit. We got, a, we got a variant that was much more transmissible. And through that, it also changed the way that infected us. So we ended up getting upper respiratory tract so-called infections rather than deep lung, which is where the trouble starts. So, but I have to say, in an unvaccinated person, this is not an easy infection, right? We're just lucky that we all have, most of us have been vaccinated or prior infected. So th th there is no rhyme or reason. The virus, once it's infected you and infected the next person, it doesn't care what happens to you. 
I mean, not that it's... I'm, I'm but not, we are kind of holding to the same schedule as the Spanish flu. I know that's a misnomer uh, now, and my yep. wife, who's from Spain, hates it. when it, She's like, it's the Kansas flu. Yeah. No, we called it the Spanish flu in 1918. Uh, that hung around for like two years, right? It was deadly at first and then got less and less deadly, and now it's the flu that we all you know, get. But it's immunity. That's, that's the difference. Over those two or three years, you build up immunity, either through an infection is not the ideal way or through the vaccines that they gave us which was great so that's what the difference is and i think we have we can't separate the two from each other is it possible that another variant turns up that's back to the high virulence of the previous delta variant and more transmissible yes i mean it's all random the, as far as the virus is concerned once you're infected and it's had the opportunity to jump to the next victim whatever it doesn't care what happens to you. You can go and die, whatever. It makes no difference, right? That's the critical part here. That can happen by accident. Hopefully it won't. Hopefully our immune system gets us controlled. Delta, I mean, yep. if you look at, everyone says Omicron's less virulent or less problematic. Look at Delta. The death rate per case for Delta was already pretty low. So it's the vaccines. So, China. by the way, are we, back, are we back to, are we back down to a level that is, more like the traditional flu? In terms of case fatality yeah. rate? N not really, because it all depends on which country you look at and what age group you look at. I there are age groups okay. where the number of deaths are still high and perhaps would benefit from a fourth shot, which I'm sure is the next thing you're going to ask. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, they, President Biden came out recently and said those over 50 in this country, I think I might be, I have to check my license, I might be above 50, can get a fourth booster get a fourth shot another booster do i need that i'm 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 getting in line by the way when they start offering it i'll be yeah. the first in line you can go get it now dude can no I? one's checking your id at cvs okay you just walk in and get a shot all right, right. oh all right, well, i'll do that yeah, yeah. <laughs> no so so the thing is do you want to play whack-a-mole with this forever um if we're talking about preventing severe disease you not getting bad disease uh, below the age of 70 i don't see the data there's no, there seems to be no difference if you had a fourth or a third shot based on current data. Remember, right. that's been a, a, an important thing for us to remember every time we talk about this. The data evolves because it's, you know, we're literally yep. building the ship as we're trying to sail it. Um, so below the age of 70, I haven't seen data that convinces me a fourth shot makes a difference to severe disease. If you want to have three or four months of cover not to catch it, you probably could do with that, and you get this boost in antibodies that will contract again. Yep. Um, so that whack-a-mole game, or do you want to prevent severe disease? Okay. How about the, our friends in China? I, I, I don't see that ending well there. I mean, they've had such a zero-tolerance policy, which arguably worked for them in terms of the disease, maybe not so much for their economy and the global economy, but certainly for them and the disease. But Omicron seems like it doesn't really care about that what what changed for them was omicron okay. they did everything right yep. they had a great i mean they had a fantastic track record in terms of number of people who died compared to us sure. here yep. or in the uk but what changed was omicron <laughs> i mean they did everything right in terms of keeping people alive you mean right 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 it oh no probably sucked to M live there mental health is a total yeah. different conversation for us to have the impact on healthcare in other areas but now omicron I is not playing by their by the right um the right rules. But fortunately not, I was going to say not as deadly, but you met, you pointed out, for, for vaccinated people, how many people there are vaccinated? Yeah, so the numbers I'm hearing is that only 30 or 40% of people that are in the risk group of 
more aged, uh, a, higher, uh, older people are only ever had. And that's, they only and ever that's with the Sino And that's with Sinopharm or right. whatever, yeah. yeah. Right. So what they need, which is what we argued in a piece we wrote with the Economist team, is to get an mRNA shot into those arms or something equivalent in terms of... F is that going to happen, do you think? Well, there's ju I've just seen news over the weekend that they're starting, <coughs> excuse me, two trials with different mRNA vaccines homegrown. But why do that rather than going somewhere where there's an enormous body of data that tells you what, exactly what to expect if you gave them a biology? And wouldn't shot? Pfizer love to go in there and put jabs in a couple but billion people? They, why not? Yeah. But also, BioNTech's already got a partner in China. Okay. They already filed the data in China, to my estimation, at least six months ago. Plus, with they corporate espionage, they probably have all the data anyway, right? Yeah. They, <laughs> right. I mean, I, look, but at the end of the day, go with the vaccine that you know does what it yep. does. You know. I tell you, we complain about these big pharma companies gouging us on drugs, but boy, they came through here in this pandemic. I mean, they really did, Yeah. in my opinion. I mean, they one year— these, Agreed. Guys, these guys Agreed. came out with this stuff and they got it into people's arms and hopefully we can do it in some of these uh, developing countries as well. Sam Fazelli, thanks so much for joining us live. Yes, live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Comes to us live from London, usually on the phone, but we got him here in New York. I guess I got to buy him dinner tonight. He's head of European research for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, big time pharma analyst over there in the city of London. He's a real hot shot, but we got him in our studios. I think Elon Musk has some restrictions on actually being on Twitter tweeting but it doesn't stop him from buying Twitter I have to admit it doesn't I stop him from tweeting either yeah uh, he, he, he didn't care about he doesn't care about those silly no. SEC uh, but I'll tell you I did not see this news this morning him taking a stake in Twitter maybe somebody smarter than us did see this hey Dan Dan Ives managing director senior equity analyst at Wedbush Securities and a proud Penn Stater uh, joins us Dan oh, yeah, before we get to that actually yes. Dan I was thinking about you this weekend uh oh I, uh, I went back to my mom's garage in Granville, Ohio to pick up uh, an old a classic Ducati Monster S4RS. Sure. And I drove it back here to New York as Why? I was... I, don't, I thought it would be fun, and it yeah. actually wasn't. But it was one thing that was cool was I did stop in State College uh, in, in Happy Valley, and I thought about Dan. Dan Ives. Uh, Dan, what do you make of this? What's Elon doing here? Look, I think this is really the start of what's going to be a shakeup at Twitter. I mean, Musk doesn't just do a passive 9% stake for fun. So I think this is ultimately the start of a broader role at Twitter. And, you know, this is really ultimately Musk expanding the ecosystem. That's why the street's reading this as basically this is the start of something much bigger that Musk is leading. But so we were taking passive as uh, meaning he won't take a board seat or, you know, tell – um, the C-suite, what to do. But does passive mean something else? Yeah, I mean, look, Paul, there's a better chance of me playing Augusta this weekend than, <laughs> Musk, keeping just, than Musk keeping just a passive stake. I mean, this is going to go active above the 10%. It's a matter of the conversations with the board and do they ultimately play ball. But I think that's really the view is that, especially Twitter, which has been the right lane, I mean, where others are passive in the left lane, you know, social media from a monetization perspective, it's been disappointing. And of course, Musk is, is you know, is not no secret in terms of his criticism of Twitter. So it's like, look, if if the bank has your house, then you can just buy the bank. And I think 
he's going down that path. We got to see which direction it goes. But obviously for Twitter, it's bullish because clearly that he's going to shake things up. Dan, what do you think he could do here or should do here? What I think he could do is at least board seats, get more active, a new suite of directors, and then ultimately look to either change some of the policies you know, by being on the board, and then eventually, depending on how it all shakes out, I mean, th- this could ultimately lead to a sale. You know, obviously, private equity could get involved. And I think that's, that's the view here is that this soap opera, this is just a start of what's going to happen with Musk and Twitter. And because, as we all know, I mean, Musk is not someone that just puts one toe in the, the water, right? And, and, and I think he's going to be a lot more aggressive, you know, I think in the coming months and year, especially as it comes to Twitter. What does he want to change at Twitter? What has he been unhappy about? Well, clearly, I mean, there's a lot of criticism that he's talked about in terms of freedom of speech and others on Twitter. I think it's led to, you know, his view that he was really going to try to create his own social media platform, which, as we all know, that's extremely difficult. And obviously, you know, he looked at and and his advisors looked at the situation, but Dorsey going to the background, you know, with a lot of sort of passive stakes in Twitter. I think there was an opportunity, and he recognized it was now or never to to really go after Twitter. And I think this is the start, right, in terms of a passive ownership stake, which likely goes to active. And now it's a matter of what the next step is. Dan, you followed Elon Musk and and Ted Tesla and his career for a long time. What do do you think? Is this from a portfolio perspective, his personal portfolio of assets, you know, some people are suggesting this is the beginning of him trying to diversify a little bit. Do you expect him to be spreading more of his wealth out into other companies, other industries? How do you think about that? Yeah, and, and remember, he's not an activist like in the sense of like an icon or others. Right. He doesn't view it like that, just getting into his mind, right? I mean, the way Musk views this is that just like he did on EVs, just like he did with space, he's like he looks at social media and be like, something's wrong here from his viewpoint. This needs to be changed, and I'm going to change it, and I'm the richest person in the world, and I'm going to start that. And I think that's that's what he's really going down with Twitter. Now the conversation is like, what's the next step? Can you change monetization of the platform, algorithms, advertising, right? These are all things from an investor perspective. It's not just the whole, you know, clinical freedom of speech issue. So I think that's really going to be the focus going forward, what the next steps are. But, you know, this is one where you know, I think for Twitter, from an investor perspective, they obviously welcome this because there's very few that could rock the boat like this. And Musk is obviously one. Interesting stuff. I, I, I don't know what I just don't know what this guy's going to do with this thing. It's 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 really amazing. And uh, uh, I, I, boy, I didn't see this coming at all. But anyway, exciting, though, right? Good stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. great for Monday. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your perspective. Dan Ives. He's a managing director. He's a senior equity analyst. He covers all this tech stuff, all the internet. One of the fastest growing areas in wealth management is the family office. Uh, we're seeing more and more of these uh, structures set up as perhaps, you know, 
families sell their business. They've got the cash proceeds, and what do they do with it? They need to set up a family office and, and manage that money. So that's been a big area of growth for a lot of the it's financial It's interesting that they do that instead of just going to a bank and saying, here. Exactly. But exactly. the thing is they just have so much money. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and it's more than just your 60-40 portfolio. Uh, Rajesh Nakati, head of investments for BNY Wealth Management, joins us. Rajesh, it's interesting here. We think about these family offices and it's, you know, we used to think, oh, stocks, bonds, maybe some commodities, maybe some real estate. How about crypto? What are you seeing on the crypto side of the business as some of these family offices look to deploy capital? Uh, sure. Hey, thanks for having me on. And uh, it's certainly been quite an evolution. Um, you know, we've been doing um, investing and wealth management for family offices here at BNY Mellon for over 50 years. And so we've certainly seen a lot of transition in that time. Uh, we have clients that, you know, in the fifth generation. And then, like you said, there are you know, newer clients that are just setting up the structures and so we did a survey recently, you know, uh, heard back from over 200 family offices, which is quite a bit because it's such a distributed um, space, right? And so we got a, a lot of really good feedback and insights on, on topics, you know, including impact and uh, investing and crypto, like you said, cybersecurity, succession planning, et cetera. So uh, a lot of rich insights. Uh, you know, the common theme seems to be no one size fits all, that, that they're all, you know, approaching this in their own unique way. And so, you know, roughly, say, a quarter, less than a quarter, um, indicated that they're not really interested uh, in, in crypto right now. But then on the other side, over three quarters uh, said that they are actively exploring and, and are investing in the space and plan to grow their investments here. So it's still a substantial amount um, of family offices that are investing. What are we talking about here when we say family office? What size of a uh, 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 fortune do you need to start a family office, or does it make sense to have when you to to go out and invest in a family office? It, it it's really, I mean, it's a fungible uh, term. You know, different people use different benchmarks and services uh, to define what a family office is. To us, it means you know, you you let's say half a billion or so, but that number has been growing up. It's really, you know, indicating where you need a professional staff and an entity to manage the wealth, uh, especially multi-generational, right? And so you, you, you uh, set up the office with professional staff that can do the due diligence, can run the affairs, uh, create a portfolio that's set up to, you know, manage the wealth of the family or, or, or generations in a very strategic way. But in many cases, opportunistically as well. So it's really, you know, funding a family office and the costs uh, uh, associated with that that define, you know, uh, who's doing it. Right now. How autonomous is this? I mean, can you at um, you you've served family offices at Bank America, at UBS, now at BNY Mellon. Do you offer kind of a structure? Can you do staffing? Can you uh do you have office space? I mean, how much can you actually help to set up a family office? Sure. No, so specifically at BNY Mellon, uh, we work with all 400 family office clients. And so we work with the family offices, right? We're not a family office. And so they have, uh, in, in various shapes and forms, their own office structure. 
And so we work with them on a whole range of services, including investments, trust, fiduciary, wealth management, credit, uh, et cetera, you name it. So we're working with the staff, the CIOs, the founders, the principals, et cetera, to offer them all these services. You know, Rajesh, I have a, a friend of mine who manages his family's office. They had a liquidity event about 50 years ago, five zero, and they just had another liquidity event uh, just a couple months ago that will double the liquidity. That's a jargon here. term. What does that mean, liquidity event? Uh, they sold they got a, super, a big super asset. rich. Yeah, <laughs> and they sold a company, and now they just uh, sold another asset. So, and he was saying when he and he's about my age, so late fifties when when he inherited the kind of the management role. His big thing was going strictly from stocks and bonds to maybe private equity, venture capital. That was his twist. That was his addition. He's buying crypto? Now, yeah. his children are coming to him and saying, Dad, we need to be in crypto. Are you seeing that, that yeah. a lot of these younger generations are saying, we need to have exposure to this? Absolutely. And it's one of the things that came uh, back as, you know, in our survey, uh, just one of the most striking things that, that we saw was the younger generations really driving, you know, the adoption and the activity in the crypto space as a big generational shift, right? Uh, more than two-thirds of family offices indicated that, you know, the crypto space speaks to the aspirations of the next-gen investors. Uh, you know, we're seeing this in, in the training, on the training desk as well, including family offices, and certainly family offices have a – uh, front row seat to this transition because on the one hand they are institutional in their allocations and portfolios but then they're also families and so to your point the younger generations really nudging and driving uh, a lot of the interest and exposure in, in within within the family offices and in terms of um I guess, you know, they're, they're all different in terms of their crypto investments, but are they all also branching out into, you know, private credit markets and, um, you know, other alternative mm -hmm. investments rather than just yes. stocks and bonds? I guess that's that's a given, right? It really has. And uh, look, you know, we've been uh, in a phase where uh, fixed income wasn't yielding much in terms of interest. And so it became more of a capital preservation bucket. And so investors that need income had to branch out and look for alternative sources of credit to, like you said, private credit and, and other opportunities. Uh, but certainly the private side of the portfolio has been the fastest growing segment within uh, family office portfolios. You know, you get the illiquidity premium, uh, right? And then you get uh, some essence of control over, over the outcome and, and be able to add, you know, uh, value and alpha within the portfolio. So. Uh, that's been the fastest growing segment. And then, you know, within within the private space, uh, more recently in the last year or two is, is where, you know, crypto and digital assets has really uh, increased quite a bit uh, in terms of clients' interest and, and activity uh, on the private side. Some good stuff there for the family office segment. Again, you listen to the UBSs, the the BNY Mellons, the Morgan Stanleys, the family office is uh, a growing part of their uh, wealth management business. Rajesh Nakati, head of investment for BNY Mellon Wealth Management, joins us there. They are looking at crypto. The kids coming up in these family offices want some exposure. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.